Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. thing to help get their point across. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate this. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for taking on some time and coming on. And, you know, a lot of times with these, we usually just take a few minutes uh, and let the guests just kind of explain like where their background is and what they're interested in and just let our listeners kind of know where you're coming from. So if they're not familiar with who you are, they have a, some background idea and then we can dive into some topics. So I grew up on a farm, the family farm, and uh, spent 17 summers there when I was a kid starting at the age of nine. And uh, when you look at my family, they're pretty healthy even to this day. And I didn't really have experiences with uh, medical doctors, chiropractors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, most of my family, they're either farmers or teachers. So, but I wanted to be a doctor of something. I was pre-med in college. And then I went to, uh, before I took the MCAT to uh, apply, I interviewed a dozen students and doctors of medicine to uh, find out what they thought of their profession and, you know, if I should go into it. And none of them encouraged me to go into medicine. So it was over 12. So I figured, okay, well, look at podiatry, veterinary medicine, optometry. And then I spent a couple hours with a chiropractor in my hometown. And there was two things about it that were intriguing to me. So one was it's holistic. And I was pretty holistic minded growing up, like seeing on the farm, you know, you got to plant a seed and it doesn't instantly grow. You got to care for it. And the other thing, it was uh, manual labor. And I was really used to blue collar work and I could see myself doing that work. When I was in chiropractic school, I had never been to a chiropractor. I had never even been to a chiropractor. Here I am in my first semester, and, I'm, and then I get adjusted for the first time. But when I was in school, I went to a lot of seminars outside of school, and I went to a few nutrition seminars. And at that point, I decided to be a chiropractor who focuses on nutrition because I realized that the reason why this country's population is so sick is because our food supply is so bad. So that was 1995, 1996, somewhere in there. I graduated in 97 and I started doing like hardcore, I call it hardcore holistic nutrition in 1998. I discovered the Weston A. Price Foundation in 1999 and went low carb in 99 and started to apply that with my patients. And through those years, I was trying to figure out ways to apply it into my patients' lives and, um, you know, there's different books that I would recommend and different things that I would say, but I've, but I've been low carb my whole career and then really getting into ketosis about four years ago and then more carnivore. When I say carnivore, not like you, Sean, but like 90% of my calories are meat and it's been absolutely fantastic. It was about a year and two months ago. It, my first day on carnivore was a Tuesday and on that day I had 1.75 pounds of red meat in the form of burger patties. And that night I slept like a baby. And then within two days I had this chest pain go away. So I, there's a little story behind that, but I had black mold poisoning from 20, 
2016. And I had two kinds of chest pain. One was right in the heart and one was deep along the spine in my mid back. But within, it was actually within three days of the carnivore diet, that deep chest pain along my spine was gone. And then a week later, I broke my chest press record at the gym. And um, so now it's been over a year and I can still see the benefits, right? Like brain power and endurance, right? So like it's, I have a sort of a heady type job. I got to be thinking and talking and, and listening really well with patients all day. I still, you know, I'm full-time Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, seeing patients and I got, and I got five businesses. So, you know, I have like 30 employees. I got a lot that's on my plate and I got to have the physical and mental endurance and power to get through that. And the carnivore diets has been the best thing. Now, considering that I've been low carb, meaning less than 75 grams a day since 1999, 2000, like that's, in my opinion, in my experience, that's not enough, right? It's, it's got to be, and even just being keto isn't enough because it's got to be keto with lots of protein, right? So that's been my experience. And, uh, but probably the most profound aspect that affects my healthcare uh, delivery right now. And so like, you know, just to describe my practice, if I see 60 patients a week, you know, f- you know, four days or four weeks a month, I really only have two chiropractic patients. So, and I see them once a month. So otherwise it's all nutrition and people come to me because they see my YouTube channel, they see our marketing on our social media. And the name of my business is called the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor. So they know they're getting nutrition when they come to see me. But I used to be in this other office just around the corner from where I'm at now. And I was there for 13 years. And um, I, at one point, I moved my desk next to a window that was leaking. And any time that it rained sideways, like when it was you know, a heavy wind and the, the rain would get pushed right through the walls, the walls were porous, and the water would touch the drywall, and then mold was growing. And I was in that building for 13 years. But I moved my desk next to a very leaky window and uh, but it took about a year and I started getting heart palpitations and pain right at the heart and I didn't know that the problem was mold for a year I was trying to figure out like what the heck was going on and why I was having these problems and I knew it wasn't your standard you know cholesterol placking and all that stuff because I'm healthy my diet's been low carb no sugar for so long and I have various blood tests that I've run and all that well what happened was I took some supplements um, halfway in that year, midway through that year, I took some supplements to try to, you know, fix these problems. And it turns out two days later, I felt better. And I, I knew I was on the right track, but I didn't know why those supplements worked. So I started looking into the developer of that sort of recipe of pills. And those pills were actually designed in 1934. And the designer started doing his own feeding studies in 1925. And this completely blew me away. And so I started buying all these old nutrition and medical textbooks and reading what they learned back then and what they were trying to do and what this guy was doing with his formulas for his supplements. And um, so once I figured out what they were saying and what they were addressing back in the 30s, then it completely changed my whole viewpoint on healthcare. And now everything made sense. And uh, it's, it's pretty profound, but the point is there's a mechanism of chronic disease that underlies, you know, most chronic illnesses. I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying most of the time. And um, there's there's causes of chronic disease. 
And there's, there's a mechanism, there's many mechanisms, but there's one that's most common. And then the other thing to address is to feed the organs to get rid of symptoms. So the organs will cause symptoms to occur. So those three things, finding the cause and fixing it, addressing the mechanism, and then feeding the organs to get rid of symptoms. I learned that from some of the founders of healthcare, like Dr. Otto Warburg said that, he's the father of physiology. And uh, Dr. Henry Harrower said it, he's the father of endocrinology. And so what I learned too, going from about 1848 to about 1961, the focus from, for these doctors to address the, uh, people with chronic illness, the focus was fixing the mechanism. Now at the time, it was called lactic acidosis. And the definition has changed now. So if, you know, if, if a person goes to the hospital and says, hey, I have lactic acidosis, the doctors are gonna laugh at them. But if you look at the definition from 1932, it applies in most situations with people with chronic illness, whether it's from eating too much sugar, like the standard American diet, toxicity, or maybe a pathogen, like I had mold, mold black mold creates lactic, uh, creates lactic acid. And it's not about the actual blood test of being like high lactate, which is you know, a cheap and easy test to run, a blood test, but it's actually about the mechanism. So um, you guys ready for me to talk about the mechanism? <laughs> sure. This is, so it gets, so I've done, I've done several podcasts through this summer and I don't, I don't always get through the whole mechanism fully through because at some point somebody gets stuck on it, but, um, but let me run through this. It is, it's easy to say. And the, the understanding is like, it's, it's like, okay, I have a 1970 Buick car. It's got a, it's got a four barrel on the, it's got a 350 engine with a four barrel, meaning it has 315 horsepower. If I were to change out that four barrel and put a six barrel on top of it and I drive it down the road, I'm going to learn a few things about the car. For example, now I know that the exhaust system is too restrictive. I need to change the exhaust. Now I know that the brakes are too wimpy. I need to get bigger brakes. And now when I take corners, it's going to tilt more and you need to, you know, put in some bigger sway bars or something like that. The point is you change one thing in the car and it can affect the whole other systems that seem to be unrelated. It's the same thing with lactic acidosis as defined in the 1930s. The, you can have high lactate, and they knew this in 1932. They, they, knew, they could measure lactate, but they said there's other chemicals that are also toxic, and they, what they do is they, they um, squeeze out or they push out oxygen. Relative to the oxygen, there's too much toxicity. That's like, that's the bottom line. So how do you get high lactate? Number one, you eat sugar all the time and your body's burning sugar all the time. You get five waste products from burning sugar. That's lactate, acetaldehyde, acetate, ethanol, and then acid, the, hyd the hydrogen, um, hydrogen ions. So those are the five waste products from burning sugar. So, so you have toxic blood. And then when you're doing a lot of glycolysis, you only get two ATP every time you cycle through glycolysis. So it's inefficient and it's, and it's dirty. Like you get waste products from using glycolysis. Ideally you're using mitochondria. Okay. So, and if there's anything that you want me to stop and explain, I can explain it more. But when you run through a cycle of mitochondria, you know, oxidative phosphorylation, et cetera, you get 30 to 36 ATP. It's very efficient. There's no waste products. It's ideal. And that's why ketosis is so important. And that's why, meat is so important, carnitine and all that stuff. 
so that your body's using mitochondria as best as it can. So, but getting back to like the standard American diet or a high carbohydrate diet. So now you're burning sugar all the time and you could be healthy. You know, you could be 60 years old and still be a runner, but then you get a sudden heart attack. That's what happened to one of my employees, uh, father-in-law, he's 61 years old and he died this about six weeks ago. He got done with his run and now he's, he got showered up, went to breakfast. He felt bad he, and he, he fell down on the floor and he had a heart attack. He never got into ketosis ever in his life. That's probably the problem. He wasn't um, uh, burning the fat that's getting stored, you know, in the arteries and in the, in the abdomen and stuff like that. So, but getting back to the mechanism. So when you have excess glycolysis and uh, like a lack of mitochondrial function, you get these waste products, and then you also have relatively low oxygen in the blood. That combination of excess lactate or other waste products and low oxygen makes the body dilate the arteries because it's trying to get more um, nutrition to the cells. And the little capillaries, they dilate also because they're trying to get oxygen and nutrition to the cells. And the, and the cells are trying to dump their waste into the blood to, so that can be carried away. But if you're, so this happens with athletes. So, you know, Zach, you're running and then you get some muscle burning or you're lifting weights, your muscles burn. You got some lactic acid going on there. You're breathing deeper and heavier and, and faster. And the soreness in your muscles is telling you to stop. So you take a little break, your breathing slows down and the muscle you know, soreness goes away. That's normal for athletes. But if somebody's unfit, they're unhealthy, they have bad habits, they're not exercising, they're eating bread all the time, they become unhealthy um, and now they start exercising and they get worse symptoms. They get, they're out of breath faster. Their muscles are sore all the time. They have too much lactate and too much waste products in their blood all the time. So anyways, getting back to this mechanism, um, the arteries dilate, the capillaries dilate and they get engorged with blood you get a stagnation of circulation. You get capillary engorgement. So that term capillary engorgement, I read from a document you know, back in the 50s, in the late 50s. So you get this stagnation and now the cells are stagnant with their nutrition. They can't get nutrition in, they can't get the waste out and they starve and they die. Now you have cell death, which leads to tissue death, which leads to organ death, which leads to body death. That's the mechanism of chronic disease. That's lactic acidosis as defined by the, in the 1930s. And then in this process, then I just already mentioned diabetes. That's excess sugar metabolism. And then um, one thing, so this is also related to heart disease. So I was listening to Ivor Cummins and he was interviewing Malcolm Kendrick. And Malcolm Kendrick was talking about uh, different other causes of um, heart disease and heart attacks. And he said that like, Cholesterol plaquing in the heart, it's not necessarily LDL. It's, that's not what it is. Malcolm Kendrick said it's LDL plus a protein plus another LDL. That's lipoprotein A. He said plaquing in the heart is a lipoprotein A problem, which is, you know, which, which is bad. And it's, it's a blood clot factor. It's not a cholesterol plaquing. It's a blood clot factor caused by and now he didn't say this, but I know that this is the problem. It's changed hemodynamics. It's altered blood flow, creating eddies and turbulences and other weird flows in the arteries. And that's when blood starts to clot. And that's when you get some placking. So again, that's related to lactic acidosis because if you have 
heart cells that are starving and then they start to die, your heart changes the beat just a little bit. You get a change in the hemodynamics of the heart and then you get altered you know, blood flow and then you get more and more placking. And if it becomes an extreme heart cell death, now you have a heart attack. It could be the whole heart. It could be just a part of the heart. And then some of that heart is, you know, shows up on a scan uh, being, being dead, right? So you guys with me on this? Yeah, if I can just jump in real quick, Darren. Okay. I think um, some of this stuff you're saying is, uh, it makes sense to me because I think it's like, when, especially with the, the endurance runner kind of phenomenon of heart attacks. I mean, people, I think they look at that community. I think this is the last group of people that are going to suffer a heart attack. Um, and then with the oxidative stress of metabolizing sugar versus, you know, metabolizing fat, I think we've seen that in some studies as well, where like that oxidative stress is lower if you're not going glycolytic. Um, you can correct me if I'm off base on some of this stuff, uh, but so my thought with that is like two things. Like, so one would be, uh, just this, uh, you know, there's this narrative, that a lot of these chronic diseases are tied to like the excessive consumption of things. So like you see a lot of these, these chronic diseases kind of regress or go away when someone maintains an energy balance or an energy reduction with their output. So is some of that just because when we get above and beyond what our body actually needs and we're, we're kind of eating in surplus, then it's also this kind of dirty burning fuel that just creates this like greater overload when compared to if we're kind of restricting and our body's kind of utilizing what we give it plus some of our adipose tissue. Am I, and then I guess I should add one more thing, sorry, but like the interesting thing that I'm trying to connect dots with here is then, then you get the endurance athlete who's training a lot, burning a lot more energy than the average sedentary person. And if they're fueling that activity on primarily sugar, right. They're, they're, yes, they're being active. So yes, they're having a bigger energy output, but they're also creating a bigger waste product in the same time period, regardless of how much energy they're, they're putting out, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So it, I think the first question was kind of driven more towards like calories in calories out, right? To a degree, energy like, I, I, I mean, I, I hate to say that because I think when people hear calories in calories out, they automatically think like there's this magic number of calories you automatically burn every day. And then there's this automatic kind of amount of energy you take in by eating like food. And then there's no, like, there's no like liquidity with it all where like some foods are going to create a higher thermodynamic load on your body. And some foods are going to cause you to probably get hungrier early. And then yeah, if that's... you eat ad libum, you're going to eat in surplus. Right. Yeah. So that's what it comes down to is the quality of the food. Mm -hmm. And then, and then um, I have a, an equation that I put on all my, uh, in each of my treatment rooms, we have like a, a whiteboard and it says quantity plus quality equals vitality. So people say to me all the time, what about bananas? What about water? What about, you know, peas? What, you know, and they're t asking me these questions about types of food. I don't answer those questions. I only talk about quantity. So Graham, tell me about your grams of fat, carbohydrates, and protein. And I get their carbohydrates way down. And then their, you know, their fat and their protein, their protein goes up and then the fat goes up or down depending on what they need. If they need to lose weight, I lower their fat down. So there's the, there's the thing. So when you're eating the right foods, you can go, you know, eight hours between meals, no problem, right? Or 20 hours, some people. And then, um, and it's impossible to eat too much protein. 
So, you know, they've done studies where they give people, and I'm exaggerating, here's 20,000 calories of pork chops. You have 10 hours, go. And they, you know, people can't do that unless they're a competitive eater, you know? So, yeah, I don't ever uh, stress out ever about like energy balance or calories in, calories out. It's all about, you know, you feed your body the homo sapien diet is, is what uh, Brian Sanders calls it, you know? And then uh, see what happens. And so some people do that and now they have some problems like you know, they get muscle cramping, so they have to increase their salt or, you know, they have uh, some issue that comes up and we fix it. So I hope, so, and now the other thing that you're saying about endurance athletes, I like to refer to Tim Noakes. You know, he was a marathon runner for decades, gaining weight, um, pre-diabetic. I don't know if he ever got diagnosed with diabetes, but he had metabolic syndrome going on. So yeah, it, come, it does come down, even though you're running a lot, even though you're physically fit, that doesn't mean that you're healthy, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, actually, you know, the interesting thing about that is I was following some of Tim's stuff with that. And the irony of some of it was uh, I, was, I wasn't directly looking into it necessarily because I'm not eating tons of sugar. But, uh, you know, I just broke the 100-mile world record. And one of the guys I had followed for the years as I was kind of pursuing it was this guy named Don Ritchie from the U.K., who had the world record for 25 years. And this guy would train six, 7,000 miles a year sometimes when he was in the peak of things. And at the end of one of his books, he mentioned that at the end of his career, he was diagnosed with type two diabetes. And the guy's rail thin, he's not like obese outwardly, or um, you, wouldn't, you would never expect him to have it. So he kind of fits Tim's narrative really nicely as like, you know, you can't necessarily outrun it <laughs> i guess to right. say, who knows whether there's some individual variables there or not but right. uh so this, it's interesting to see yeah sorry so this leads into what fuels are you are you using now you can burn ketones which is fantastic now and there are people that lose weight and they never get any ketosis so they're getting getting rid of fat which is fine but they're missing out on the benefits of the ketones then you can burn sugar and you can burn alcohol alcoholics use alcohol and they're fermenting that. And then the other, the fifth energy source would be lactate. So now lactate is minus four ATP. The lactic acid cycle will draw energy from you. I don't know if you know this, but that's cachexia. It's the same thing as when people die from cancer, cancer cachexia, it's the same mechanism. Or if somebody has a heart attack and now they're losing weight, that's, that's cardiac cachexia. So, Sean, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's other terms like um, sugar acidosis back in the 60s and um, the Cori cycle. It's all the same mechanism. So the whole point is to, to like stop that mechanism now so that you don't ever get into the lactic acid cycle, that you're never losing energy. So, that, you know, there's people that they just sit on the couch and they, they have no energy whatsoever for various reasons. And they're completely unfit and they're eating bad food. They're, they're using lactate as, as fuel sometimes they're, they're, and they're losing ATP in that cycle. So, um, but what I've, what I, now when I first, I've been studying this for three and a half years and like getting into it because I think it's, when you look at it, it's like if we focus on the lactic acid cycle as like the thing to prevent, then we have this broader picture right now. Doctors look at blood glucose, which is great. They look at insulin, like, like the low insulin diet. That's also, the, you know, a great thing to look at. But that, that's sort of earlier on when somebody's sick, like Dr. Kraft, 
when he was studying um, insulin and sugar, he's saying that by the time the average Americans at the age of 19, that 90% of them have high insulin. So that's diabetes there. And then blood glucose being high is a late manifestation that can occur decades later. In the meantime, your cholesterol goes up, your triglycerides are too high, your blood pressure goes up, you may gain weight or maybe not. And then later on, now you're diagnosed with a disease, you got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, your liver enzymes are high, your kidney, kidneys are dysfunctional. And you have the series, it's a predictable series of steps of pathology that occur through somebody's lifetime over the course of decades. And it's like, well, the end result then is high lactate. And that happens. So like I had a patient a few weeks ago and his lactate level was 3.5 and he didn't exercise, but he's got poor kidney function. I think his GFR was like 36 or something. And I put him on, I gave him some supplements. I gave him uh, a, a particular supplement that was designed in 1934 to fix lactic acidosis. And then four hours later, his uh, lactate went from 3.5 to 3.0 in four hours with this one supplement. So, so I'm saying like, so like if, if we just look at insulin or if we just look at blood glucose, or if we just look at, you know, like lipoprotein A, we're sort of missing the bigger picture of the whole disease process that begins early on and ends in death. And, um, but, but like I said, in, I don't know, I didn't say this yet, but in the 1930s, through the 70s, through 1976, I have a book saying like, if you have a chronically ill person, assume that they have lactic acidosis, assume that they have the mechanism going on and then, um, and, and then treat it that way. But, but during those decades, they applied it to so many people with chronic illness. Now it's only applied to athletes and people that have five days left to live. So like if somebody can have a lactate level of, of three or four and uh, they feel like they feel really bad. And then 10 days later, now their lactate's 20. And then three days later, they're dead, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a sign of comorbidity morbidity with other conditions. So we're not necessarily addressing lactate, you know, as the thing, just like, you know, doctors address cholesterol as the thing or blood pressure, that's the thing. No, it's all of it put together. But I think that lactate should be addressed and thought of more than anything else because it is the lactic acid cycle. It's how most people end up dying. And if you can reverse that, which we know how to. Um, but, there, but the other thing that I want to share with you is that um, you can have a point of no return. So when the lactic acid cycle is driven by inflammatory markers like you know cytokines and all these all this inflammation from bad seed oils and stuff like that, it's harder and harder to reverse. And then lactate is cleared from the blood by kidneys and liver. 85% is cleared out by the liver. 15% is cleared by the kidneys. If you have liver dysfunction and kidney dysfunction, you get an accumulation of lactate. So that's where diabetes comes in again. Like it harms the kidneys and you got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, high liver enzymes. So I'm, I don't know, I feel like I'm saying a lot. <laughs> I hope that everybody can follow along with what I'm saying, but it's a way to look at the health of the human body. So if someone would want to like kind of check in on themselves, you said earlier that there's, it's pretty much commonplace on like a, on a blood test. What are the ranges, if you know offhand, that people should be looking to, to be within for that? Yeah, so the normal blood test range is 0.5 to 1.5 for lactate. But the, here's the other thing, the body will buffer the lactate 
but you still have the mechanism going on. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to keep that lactate down, right? So, and this is what they knew even, you know, decades ago, they said, you can have the mechanism of lactic acidosis going on, but normal lactate in the blood. And mm-hmm. there's other chemicals and other poisons that create the same mechanism. It creates the capillary engorgement and the, and the stagnation of circulation and then cell death, you know, and, um, but, but, but symptom wise, this is what's really important. The first thing that appears symptom wise is a muscle issue. Okay. So fibromyalgia, more women get fibromyalgia than men, men get the heart pain, they get the angina, um, and then muscle cramping throughout the body, muscle fatigue, you know, easily sore muscles, uh, muscle cramping, that kind of stuff. And the reason why the muscles are first affected is because it's the largest organ in your body. You have more pounds of muscle than any other organ. So, and then, so like what happens when muscle cells, you know, they get the, the capillary engorgement, the cell death. When muscle cells die, the first thing they do is they tighten up. This is key here. This is rigor mortis. So you have a dead body on the ground and it's stiff within a few hours. All the muscles are tight. Those muscles need, um, minerals to relax them. The natural state of a muscle is tightness. And so, um, so people get a little bit of rigor mortis in their chest, right? Or a little bit in their heart, they get the angina, right? So when they get this, let's say some chest tightness, their pecs are tight, their lungs are tight. The muscle, the muscles between the ribs, the intercostal muscles, they get tight. The diaphragm gets tight. Now they can't breathe very well. And they're, and they're trying to breathe. And they think something, they think they're having a heart attack and they go to the hospital and the doctors say, nothing's wrong with your heart. Everything is fine. You have anxiety, go see a psychiatrist. So that's still, it's lactic acidosis. And these are the things I had when I had black mold. I was like, I had chest pain. My blood pressure is 155 over 95. It's three o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. I can't breathe. My heart is pounding. I have left arm pain, pain up the jaw. All my symptoms were heart, but I also had heartburn and I couldn't digest meat very well. I couldn't eat red meat for six months and my feet were swollen and I was cold. My body temperature was two degrees too cold. And I'm just standing here, just like holding on to my heart, (sighs) breathing, you know, like that, not doing anything. And I was, you know, toxic with black mold and, but people get the same symptoms from burning sugar all the time, right? So there's different causes. You can get the same symptoms from toxicity of heavy metals or chemicals. So you got different causes, but one similar mechanism. Do you get a lot of patients or interact with people who are in a, were in a similar situation as you, or it wasn't nutritionally based, but it was like black mold or some toxicity thing that they're breathing in? Because I mean, I just think of like, you know, I mean, myself personally, I mean, I live in Phoenix, fifth biggest city in the country. There's tons of people driving around and break dust and all that other stuff. Like, is, uh, is that something that is becoming more common or is there things that you can look out to try to help remedy that? Or is it something we should be checking on more frequently to make sure it's not a product of our environment? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, it comes down to like, you know, you got a holistic doctor and they're looking at toxicity you can run blood tests for that. You can run urine tests for that. Um, and the most common toxins would be mercury, like from fillings, for example, um, uh, lead from paint, et cetera. Um, but there's also chemical toxins that can occur. Uh, once I had a patient, his job was um, 
he would repair car washes. So mm -hmm. he's in these, you know, buildings where cars are going through with their engines running. He's working on the machines. He was super toxic. Um, but yeah, people that drive trucks a lot, they get toxic, toxicity that way. And so, so you got to look at toxins and you got to dig around for uh, chronic pathology, whether it's black mold, it could be chronic viruses like Epstein-Barr or these retroviruses, um, Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, they can stay in the body for decades causing fatigue. They don't kill you, you know, not like Ebola, which kills you in like in a month or two, but they are causing chronic um, illness. And then you can have chronic bacterial infections too, like the cavitations in the jaw went from a bad root canal or when somebody has their, root, their wisdom teeth pulled out, you can, uh, you can have a resultant uh, cavitation in the jaw that sits there for 20 years, always reinfecting into your blood. I got a guy that um, his, he's in his 30s. His coronary artery calcium score was 1,700 a year, a year ago, so it's high. And he's an engineer. So he's doing the ketogenic diet. He tr keeps track of his numbers. He's been fantastic with that. And he's taking the right supplements. A year later, I just, we just got the results three, whatever, six weeks ago or more. A year later, now his CAC is 1,800 something. It went up by oh, like 100 points. It shouldn't do that. And his CRP was eight. So he's got infection in his body, according to the CRP because it's not inflammation. I mean, his ketogenic diet reduces inflammation. And so he doesn't have any outward signs of infection. I said, you have an infection in your jaw, go to a good dentist and get the 3D um, X-ray called the cavitat or the cone beam. So he got that done. And sure enough, he's got seven infections in his jaw. And we already know that those infections from teeth or jaw will go straight to your heart, causing placking and causing heart disease. So th this is just the holistic viewpoint of like, what are the factors? There's, there's a limited number of factors that there are causes of chronic disease, diet, pathogens, and um, uh, the uh, toxicities. And then you address the, um, and then you address the mechanism, which, which I'm gonna tell you right now, it's the main way to fix the mechanism is red meat and liver. And that's how you break the lactic acid cycle. So we just had a patient who she was diagnosed with endometrial cancer and she's, she's not my patient. She's another practitioner in my office. I got five other nutrition based um, practitioners. One of them is a farm D and it's her patient. And um, so this, this woman had cachexia and she's losing weight and like the cancer is taking over. And so what this person did is she started eating red meat and 20 raw eggs a day. And so she, you know, eliminated all the carbs and she's getting in high quality, good fat and protein. And she stopped losing weight. The cachexia stopped. We'll see what happens with the cancer, right? But, you know, keep our fingers crossed. But at least we made some progress there in the late, later stage of this lactic acid cycle. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty fascinating, you know, kind of fascinating. You know, the one... It seems like the one disease that you dare not speak about is cancer. You know, for some reason, if you talk about nutrition having a, a potentially beneficial role in cancer, it, it gets re people really, really upset. You know, it does. It's yeah. like, it, and I just never understand that because I think any I disease can be impacted by, by nutrition. It's not to say that, you know, you know, we're telling people necessarily to forgo all the, all of the treatment in lieu of diet, but I mean, to, to, to sort of make, the uh, assumption that diet has no role there to me is, is, is 
you know, quite unusual, quite. Right. Unusual. Yeah. So when you, when you look at Dr. Gerson, he's got that cancer clinic in Mexico. Well, I mean, he, he died in what, 1959 or something. And his treatment for that was raw organic juice, one glass per hour each day. And three glasses of raw liver, never frozen, never heated, never processed, just raw liver. And when I read his book, after I figured out lactic acidosis, I was like, oh, that's what he's, he's dealing with that. And he, and they still, and it's, I think his granddaughter that's running the clinic. So that she's still using, well, they don't use raw liver anymore, unfortunately. But the point is, yeah, you have to fix the lactic acid cycle because that's what that is. So cancer is, um, when you look at what Dr. Otto Warburg figured out, you have the cells are using um, um, excess glycolysis, converting over to lactic acid fermentation, and because there's no oxygen. So when you reintroduce oxygen, the cells are still using lactic acid fermentation. And that's the problem. They should convert back over into normal metabolism using glycolysis and the, and the mitochondria but they stay, they stay with the lactic acid cycle. That's most cancer. So if you could break that, and that's what Dr. Weston A. Price was, was famous for, one of his things, that he would show up at the deathbed of people and give them uh, orange June butter and cod liver oil. Or a Junus Vanderplanets would give people, you know, he'd tell them to eat raw meat. So the people that were, were famous over the decades for saving people's lives on their deathbed, they gave people raw meat, raw eggs, you know, good oils and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, you know, yeah, I, I posted a thing on Twitter about um, cancer. I've had a few people reverse their cancer. Whether or not they're being treated by oncology doesn't, you know, it didn't matter. I've had a number of cancer patients say to me, my oncologist said, I'm doing better than anybody they've ever seen in their whole career, you know, like that. So the diet is super important. It's the, the ketosis and eating carnivore is the native state of the body and it's catabolic and it, you know, breaks down pathological tissue, whether that's cancer. And it's not true for all cancers, but you know, other pathological tissues would be fibroids and cysts and skin tags and moles and stuff like that. So it's, it, it's the best hope. That's my phrase. My phrasing is ketosis is the best hope for cancer. I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, there's, I think uh, the general community looks at that or hears that and thinks one of two things. They think like, okay, clearly we should be addressing nutrition alongside whatever standard of practice of care that we're currently doing within the oncologist's role. And then other people look at that and think it's like, okay, we should just only address nutrition and just dismiss any other type of uh, standard practice of care. And it seems like to me, it's like, I don't see why they can't work synergistically with one another. I think it's like, you know, I think, if, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have cancer, you're kind of down the pathway far enough now where there's probably some extreme measures that need to be taken if you want, want to kind of extend your life. So at that point, like you should be addressing nutrition, you should be addressing sleep, you should be going to the oncologist and having their then you know do whatever they need to do from a chemo standpoint but like to say like well nutrition is irrelevant here seems to be kind of short-sighted right yeah i think my favorite resource for cancer is a book called how to starve cancer by jane mcclellan and i have right here on my wall 
um, like a reference, I just made a copy of it. Mm -hmm. So she, call, she calls it the Metro map and there's 18 ways that cancer cells feed. And so you can, you know, go on PubMed and you type in your type of cancer and you type in, you know, one of the pathways that they feed or you type in one of the therapies here. Some of these therapies are off-label and off-patent medicine. Some of these are herbs, some, you know, like IV vitamin C is one of the therapies. So, but this is all PubMed stuff, right? It's all, it's all mm -hmm. research. There's all, all kinds of documents behind that. So do we know enough then, to, like, if, like, say you have a specific type of cancer that is known to feed feed off of uh, sugar and stuff like that. Like, okay, this is one that has a lot more of a likely positive outcome from dietary reduction of carbohydrate versus, cause I think I heard somewhere that like, as they've kind of dove into that uh, in more detail in recent years, they found like there are other cancers that do fine off of uh, like from like, they can still, they can still grow off of uh, feeding off of fat or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like prostate cancer loves ketosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for prostate cancer patients, they should do more of a pescatarian diet. So that's interesting because, like, did you say before with the, the clinic down in Mexico where – what was he giving? He was giving, like, a juice and then the liver stuff. So he was kind of almost doing, like – it was more – it was – so they were giving – they were getting sugar plus the red meat and liver. Was Is there something about the red meat and liver that oh, – yeah. that well, what role is that playing exactly – well, the, we red meat, the red meat has the heme iron or myoglobin to, um, to bring uh, oxygen and iron to the muscles, mm. right? So you're feeding the, your largest organ. Mm -hmm. And then the, the liver has all the, these, you know, back in 1940, they knew there were 50 to 100 B vitamins. All that research stopped after World War II. So right now you go to the store and you get vitamin B1, B2, B6, B5, B12, that's it. But there's actually 50 to 100 of them. So the best source of all of them is liver. Okay, so then the juices, that's not for building anything, it's for cleaning, right? So like I said, lactic acidosis is dirty blood and lack of oxygen. So the liver and the red meat increases the oxygen, then the juicing will decrease the toxicity of the blood and help the liver clean the, clean the blood, right? So that's one of the benefits of plants if people are into that is for cleansing and then some people take it too far and they think that plants are you know the end-all be-all but you know we're looking at, i'm looking at plants as medicine you mm -hmm. know the secondary metabolites like the oregano like kills fungus you know berberine kills you know bacteria that kind of stuff so yeah but that's a really good question is like you're getting these specific nutrients from liver from red meat from the juices to to really uh positively affect or, you know, to get rid of the whole lactic acid cycle. Yeah. And then, but, but one, one thing I realized about six months ago, if you just ate red meat and liver, you're completely stopping lactic, the lactic acid cycle. Just those two things alone will do it because, um, you know, the purpose of eating plants to clean the blood, not necessary, not really necessary when you stopped all the junk food, you're not eating the standard American diet anymore. And meat is really healthy, right? It's not dirty. It's not, you know, it's not, Right. So just eating meat is a very cleansing diet. And is the liver side of it just because it's going to be a bigger bolus as some of those vitamins than just like the muscle meat alone? Yes, that's exactly correct. Right. And then the vitamin A in the liver is anti-infective. That's what they call it in the 1920s before they labeled it vitamin A. They called it the anti-infective uh, 
vitamin. So it kills, you know, all kinds of pathogens, which can be a, which can play a role in the lactic acid cycle and in cancer, you know, viruses and stuff and fungus that can play a role with cancer and the lactic acid cycle. Yeah, this has been my thing, like studying going back 100 years. You know, uh -huh. really 1848 was the first candy bar ever invented, was 1848. So that's when modern healthcare starts, you know, it's like that's the problem right there. And what did people do in the late 1800s? Why did, you know, how did they study nutrition? How did they study food and vitamins? And why did they name these vitamins what they did? And then World War II and the 1960s, that changed everything. And we kind of lost our way through the 70s and 80s. What a bad couple of decades that was. The 90s weren't any better. But now we got really good research in the last 15 years on ketosis. So if you have a particular cancer, like skin cancer, or whatever, basal cell carcinoma, go to PubMed and you search basal cell carcinoma plus ketosis, you may or may not get any good answers because that research was really, you know, like lost during those decades. But that research is coming out now. It's interesting. Yeah, you know, the thing I find really interesting is so you mentioned the candy bar, and it's like since then, it's just gotten more and more uh, kind of like science behind it in probably a negative way where it's just like we're blending things to make them so hyper palatable that we get companies like Doritos even coming out straight and saying in their advertisement, I dare you to just eat one. Right. <laughs> so it's like you're heading down the wrong path when you're, I mean, you don't stand a chance, I guess, when you, you're fighting the chemists in terms of just trying to manage satiety and eating some of this like heavily researched processed foods, well, processed being, I guess, hyper-processed maybe is a better way to say it because technically everything is processed, but right. um, it's interesting. Yeah. So like even in the early thirties or in the twenties, when they started to refine bread, they didn't add anything back in. It was just pure carbohydrate with no B vitamins. And it wasn't until 1934, I think, or 35, when they added B1 into the bread. So if you go back to like during the Great, during the Great Depression, there were people that had no money. They only bought bread to eat or, you know, whatever white refined product that they could. And they're losing all their B vitamins. And they got, you know, they were 10-year-old kids with heart attacks. Mm. You know, 12-year-old boys with... Uh, very, very high blood pressure, swollen ankles, you know, so that's the extreme of the junk food diet was just purely white refined bread in 1929, 1931. So they learned a lot back then about the B vitamins. And the, that's when Otto Warburg got his Nobel Prize. You know, that's when my favorite supplements were, were, were discovered or invented. Is, is that why they started uh, fortifying like breads and cereals and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah, it was B1 deficiency, which is, you know, like I said, berry, berry, um, which has a long history. So that's part of my story, too. When I had I started taking these supplements in the beginning of February of 2016, two days later, I felt better. So I went back to some of my notes from seminars and some of the speakers at these seminars about these products were saying, yeah, this is uh, B1. And it fixes berry berry. So I got, I studied berry berry for a month. I even got a historical medical textbook from University of Michigan um, library out of their historical section. And I read this book on berry berry, and it's like, wait a minute, that's not what I had. It's not it. It's not just B1. I'm, so then when I started reading the real 
information, you know, like from the actual feeding studies prior to World War II, it's like, oh, it's lactic acidosis. You know, it's, it had a different definition then, but it's so all encompassing for all these chronic diseases. And then I started talking about it to my patients and on YouTube. And before I knew it, I had a six week waiting list because it makes sense. And that's so, and I'm, I started writing a book about three years ago or more. And I kept learning all these cool things that everything kept making more and more sense. And I quit writing the book because I, I don't know, I just, it, it, the book can keep up with all my discoveries. But now I'm working with a guy and it, it's going to be an electronic version. It's going to be blogs and stuff like that. But even this morning we're working together and he goes, Oh, is that why diabetics lose their feet? You know, like it's, it's like, yeah, that's, he's starting to get it. You know, once you understand some of these aspects of it, it's like you, you understand why heroin and cigarettes are similar on the effects of the body related to lactic acidosis. You understand why people can have fibromyalgia and depression at the same time. You understand why, you know, like all these things are related. So I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that there's, un, there's sort of a, in, in my view, most of the disease we probably see probably have a very similar common etiologies and probably it has environment and nutrition. Interesting on the beriberi thing, because I had done some, a little bit of research on beriberi when I was looking at, uh, and that's a thiamine, you know, B1's a thiamine, you know, it's wet beriberi and dry beriberi. One of them is a cardiovascular, and one of them is a uh, neurological one. And uh, it was interesting looking at some of the literature from like, I think it was a little early 1900s, late 1800s, where they're looking at animal studies and they saw, saw that uh, with respect to thiamine levels in the blood, uh, animals on animals in this case that were on low carbohydrate diets could have really low levels of thiamine and not develop the symptoms of beriberi. But when you put them on a high carbohydrate diet, despite the fact they had higher thiamine levels, they would they would become clinically symptomatic. And that's one of the arguments that I make about these blood levels and serum levels that we check. It has to be in context of what diet you're in because it may change the actual needs. And so I don't know if you came across similar findings in your, in your, uh, in your research. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, like there was a rat study where they realized they've somehow figured out that rats born had a certain amount of vitamin E. And when they died, they had the same amount of vitamin E, even though it was deficient in their diet because their, their diet was the correct diet, but you do a high carb diet for the rat. It, it loses all its vitamins and minerals. And Sean, I think it was on one of your social media platforms, there was a guy that posted, he was using chronometer, which is my favorite app to track the diet. He was using chronometer. And as a vegan, all of his micronutrients were green. All the vitamins and minerals were sufficient. But he was dying. He said that on his post, but I was dying. Then he went carnivore. Now his chronometer is all red. His micronutrients are deficient, but he had the best health of his life. So when you do a low-carb diet, you maintain your nutrients, including vitamin C, Right. And then raw meat has, you know, raw meat is a cure for scurvy. They knew that a hundred years ago and, and, and earlier than that. So that's very important. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. 
They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things I think about when you just plug stuff into something like the chronometer or just any device is we're getting like this output of the numbers that are in the foods we're eating versus like a representation of what our body's actually absorbing. And I always wonder about that because I mean, you come up with these ranges of where you should be getting these various like uh, micronutrients from, like, was there any thought put into like, well, this specific thing has like on average, like a 70% absorption rate. So therefore aim for this target. Right. But then you eat something that has under the recommended amount, but it has like like a 95% absorption rate in theory, then you could get away with having less of it because it's kind of like this, we're targeting a number, but it shouldn't really be a number or something like that. It's really kind of weird. It's all weird. And I can tell you in my research, I got books from the 1930s where they go over exactly, you know, these feeding studies were done primarily, let's say on pigs and dogs and stuff. And they would take out nutrients and they would manipulate their diet, et cetera, et cetera. And they knew exactly what symptoms were being caused by nutritional deficiency, depending on the vitamins and minerals. And they documented all that. And then in the early 40s, along comes um, the United States, the USDA or the FDA, I think it was the USDA. And they said vitamin C is an antioxidant. Vitamin E is an antioxidant. And they just took this huge, massive, fantastic, life-saving information on these vitamins that said, nope. They're just antioxidants. And so, yeah, Zach, everything you're saying, it's all lost. It's in the books. I mean, I, I got it in my books, you know, but who goes back? You know, it's not online anywhere. <laughs> who reads books? And look, <laughs> look at this book, 1925 Mayo Clinic. That's where they first started talking about ketosis for epileptic kids. You know, like this is the kind of stuff I read. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one. Um, it's a great, so exactly what I'm talking about, the A vitaminoses, A meaning without vitamins, and then the OCs is a condition of. What, what's the condition of humans and animals if they don't have any vitamins? So, you know, going through this book, I take a bunch of notes and see, you know, what the vitamins do and what they're, what's happens when they're missing. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there any effort being made to kind of, or, or what is the, the general consensus? Is some, do some people think like, oh, those are just old books. We've made progress above and beyond them. So it's worthless to go back into them. Or is it just like the current generations are so online based, they're kind of lost, lost yeah. in the, the annals of the library. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. I mean, this information here is just completely like, there's no attention whatsoever on it as if it's non-existent. But, you know, some of these books I'd read, 10 years before I got black mold and I read through and I like didn't understand it. But once I was really sick and started, and then I got a little bit better with those supplements from the thirties and I started reading the era 
<clears throat> then I understood it. Only then did I understand it because I actually experienced it. So even, even it went over my head, you know, 10 years earlier. So it's, and, it, and the way that they wrote was different. You know, it's still English, but their sentences were, were longer and they had more semicolons and the structure was different of the, of the paragraphs. You know, some of those paragraphs are like one sentence and it's five lines long. And so you have to tackle this, you know, <laughs> one sentence and it's actually, it's a whole thought process in one. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and I've read some of those older, older books and, and yeah, they sometimes are a struggle to read. It's, you know, with this, the language they use and, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess our modern palette for, for literature has changed, certainly. Um, you know, one of the problems with, you know, saying, well, we can go look at the old stuff. There's, there's some sort of garbagey stuff, I think, that was also done. You know, there is garbage years stuff, ago. Right? And you got to figure out what's, what's, what's real because, you know, I see this like Arnold Eretz stuff with the muscleless diet that the vegans love to claim to. And, yeah. you know, I just, I, just, I just think there's some people that, you know, I mean, it's good that people were speculating and, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to see what results actually work in people. Um, let me just talk about your current practice because we are in 2019 and we, it's not 1819 or 1919. Tell me about, um, what kind of conditions you see being impacted by diet, which ones seem to respond the best, which ones seem, uh, if, if you have some that don't seem to, to respond solely by diet and what other things you might employ. Okay. Well, <clears throat> So let me just start off by saying that when people start with me, it's not a short-term thing, you know, to get really good results. We're talking a year or more to get their health back in most, you know, chronic conditions. So when people come to me, they're, they have a whole list, laundry list of symptoms, and that could be like overweight and chronic fatigue and their brain does, they have cloudy thinking, their brain doesn't work very well. And then I get people, they bring in their lab tests and their kidneys are, you know, their filtration rate is too low and they, you know, they're, they got the fatty liver and that kind of stuff. Um, I get a lot of uh, psychiatric issues too, like, you know, depression, people on antidepressants and stuff like that. I just got a woman, she's been with me for about two years, maybe more. And she just got off of her seizure medications. She had been on those for like over 10 years and she's thrilled about that. And she's been in ketosis every day. And we're flooding her brain with fat. Um, so it's a wide variety of, of conditions. And uh, so sometimes I get people coming in with cancer and I tell them, look, I'm not treating cancer. I'm just helping you feed your body as best you can. Any sort of decision related to chemo radiation um, or a surgery that's between you and your doctor. So I'm just feeding people. And um, but yeah, I have a lot of fun with um, heart issues um because they respond so well and uh of course hypoglycemia you know diabetes kind of stuff that they respond really well um so yeah it's a wide variety of things um people don't come to me you know if somebody has an urgent problem i say look call 911 like i'm not an emergency room physician and uh some people are pretty pushy sometimes like i'm gonna save their life it's like nope you got to go to the hospital. Once they have you settled down, you're not going to die. Then you come to me, we'll start working on your diet and give you some supplements and you start to repair your organs in, you know, individually and that kind of stuff. So how's it, does that answer your question? 
Yeah, I mean, generally. Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, I mean, obviously it's a process for a lot of people. It's not an overnight fix. I mean, some people, I mean, although quite honestly, it's kind of interesting when you see people sort of make a big change in their diet. Some, some of the symptoms go away very rapidly. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen so many people where, you know, things like joint pain or depression, I mean, it's within, you know, a few days that, that, that they notice a significant improvement. So I think there is something there, but some of these chronic long-term, you know, damage, whether it's direct mechanical, physical damage or biochemical damage, I guess, if you want to put it that way, might take, might take longer to, to, to repair, I suppose. Right. Yeah. And it's a matter of uh, like, once they change, once they eat the type of diet I want them to eat, I'm expecting certain things to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then it's like, okay, what are we missing? What's, what do we have to address? And we fill in the holes. Right. So, but one thing I wanted to say about like depression or like cloudy thinking, you know, brain type stuff, it's the same mechanism where you have dirty blood, hypoxia, capillary engorgement, stagnation of circulation happening in the brain. So the brain cells start to starve and they die just like in the heart around the muscles. Whereas muscles will tighten up, brain cells don't do that. They just die and you get these crazy bad thoughts. So my worst night was February 3rd, 2016. And um, I'm laying in bed, where's my, and I'm, this is not my phone, but I'm like laying in bed and I'm scrolling through my phone, like which hospital should I go to? Should I have an ambulance come and get me? Should I drive myself there? Which are normal thoughts, right? It's still scary. But then I had these other weird thoughts that night about, I hope it doesn't snow because I can't, um, you know, snow plow my driveway. Who's going to um, mow my lawn in the summer? I need to sell my house. These are thoughts that I don't ever have. And at the time, I was like, okay, these are not my thoughts. Where did these thoughts come from? And then once I realized about lactic acidosis, it's like, okay, that's what was happening. So there's people that they have bad thoughts and anxiety that occur at the same time and they get you know extra fibromyalgia or they get extra nausea it's like head to toe their body's going through this episode of extra lactic acid or extra hypoxia and their cells are dying at a faster rate at that moment that's a panic attack or that's you know you know what i'm saying so i think a lot of psychiatry is actually um can be addressed this way Some, for some reason, I don't know if you guys see this on the screen, for some bizarre reason, I turned into my background, which is <laughs> yeah, I see that. a bunch of dead rabbits. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. a little bit distracting. I was trying to explain this profound yeah, thing. I don't know what happened. Dead rabbits. in there. So maybe it's some, some karmic thing that, uh, no, it's, uh, it, it was that background was to show what happens uh, on a farm when animals are you know, shot to protect the crops. And this was a, this was a big giant field of dead rabbits at some farm. Yeah. You know, that's something that even as when I was a kid, we had uh, 350 acres of sweet corn. And I remember my uncle had a, a shotgun and he would shoot the birds. And he, if he killed a bird, they wouldn't come back for 30 minutes. If he just shot it up in the air, they'd come back in 15 minutes. So, you know, pest control, right? Just shoot the birds and, <laughs> this is it's a it's a it's so destructive monoculture 
Yeah, so that's an entire, entirely different topic, and we've gotten into that with, with several guests now about trying to uh, explain that uh, food production is inevitably causing, uh, you know, animal death. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, right. In my, in my 17 years on the farm, um, you know, we got 750 acres and it's all farmland, right? My neighbors to the north, north of us had 3000 acres. And, and in my 17 years, I saw zero deer, right? Just, it's just, the land was very sterile. There's no fish in the streams. Sometimes we would see a big snapping turtle that was really old, but uh, there, it's just like the whole, all the land was just pretty kind of sterile. Very yeah, sad. it's like there's the, there's kind of like two lenses to look at it. There's the crowding out of putting that field there in the first place. And then there's all the animals that do stick around for whatever reason, whether it's they're eating the corn or whatever you're growing and then getting turned up in the combine and all that. It's, uh, it's a lot more layered than what I think people want to realize sometimes. Yeah, so where I live now, there's a... Uh, there's a few fields around me across the street. The guy doesn't use any spray and he's got some horses. He's got 150 acres and I got woods behind my house and I've been there five years. I've seen uh, a brown fox, a gray fox. I've seen all kinds of turtles, deer, snakes, you know, so much wildlife where I'm at now. It's just, it's because the agricultural impact is so less and even living like I used to live like, only a mile from downtown Ann Arbor. I had deer in my backyard there. So mm-hmm. that's just a whole other factor. My, my favorite subject to talk about is physiology. So if you want to get back into physiology, we can get into that. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about some physiology then. I like physiology. It's one of my favorite sub- subjects in medical school, quite honestly. I mean, for, some, for somebody that went into a totally mechanical uh, field of orthopedics, which is now actually more physiology and biology than probably we, we realize. but I really enjoyed physiology. I thought it was a fun, yeah. and you know, I, I consistently was, you know, did very well in that subject. But uh, yeah. anyway, let's, that, what, what kind of physiology you want to talk about? Well, it's, it's, always, it's, always, it's always about the, getting the mitochondria to work as, as well as it can. You know, when somebody um, can't recover from their exercise or, you know, let's say at the age of 20, they go out drinking, one night and then now they're 40 and they consume the same amount of alcohol but they can't recover like they used to again that's you know that's that's the lactic acid cycle taking over and they know it right and so like an athlete who um like when i work out at the gym weightlifting is my favorite sport not that you could tell by looking at me but i like pushing weights around and like eating carnivore like this, I can go, you know, I can go three hours and hardly be sore because I'm eating so much red meat, you know, which soaks up that acid, right? With the oxygen and the iron. And then the carnitine drives fat into the mitochondria to facilitate oxidative phosphorylation and increasing the ATP. And that's what it all, what it all comes down to. If you're not using the mitochondria as much as possible, you end up using glycolysis, which then may tend to lead you into the lactic acid cycle. So get away from glycolysis and get into mitochondria. So that's where fasting comes in, of course, ketosis. And when you do those two things, now you're increasing the number of mitochondria in your body, in your cells, and you're increasing their ability. So there are people, unfortunately, you know, they are born with mitochondrial dysfunction. And you can see their symptoms and all that kind of stuff. Otherwise, 
you got to work your butt off, you know, and, and of course, exercise, right, Zach? And the other thing, too, actually, Zach, about you is like of all the people on planet Earth, you can probably ferment lactate better than anybody else <laughs> and then transfer back and forth from uh, lactate to glycolysis to mitochondria, you know, and you're using all those fuels. And if, you, if you're running 100 miles and there's a time when you have to sprint uphill, for example, and you're sort of taxing your leg muscles a little bit more, you're going to be using that lactate a little bit more than anybody else. So the average person can take in, and you know, when your body's making lactate, 75% of that goes back into being used as fuel, as sugar again, or pyruvate. And the other 25% is the waste. But, but for you, Zach, you might be, you know, 90% reusing it and only 10% is waste. So that's just another aspect of uh, lactic acidosis is, is that you, Zach, have this huge cushion, this huge buffer of health, you know, away from death. But if you were to stop exercising, start eating bread every day, you know, and then sit in a moldy basement, <laughs> you know, breathing in the mold and typing away, you know, on the internet or whatever, yelling at people. Um, cause you know, cause then you get the psychiatric issues, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the formula for, you know, leading into death. So you got to stay on your feet. You got to stay active do some fasting, do some, you know, whether it's intermittent fasting or longer and then eat red meat, keep the carbs really low and then kill the, kill the organisms that are like assaulting our bodies. And, you know, looking back at our ancestors, I think that they would eat herbs and they would make teas for various purposes. You know, that's their medicine. So if somebody had an infection, then they would use, you know, echinacea root, you know, or whatever tea tree leaves or mint, mint leaves and in, in, you know like in, in abundance in their tea to try to um you know kill some organisms so um there's that <laughs> yeah i mean that's interesting the concept of plants as medicine and i'm not sort of you know i don't discount that i think there's there's some potential for that i i, I find it you know meat is probably our nutrition um let me ask you mitochondria there's been some uh, recent articles come out regarding mitochondrial health as maybe being the etiology behind diabetes. I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. You know, obviously there's the insulin model, there's a lipotoxicity model, but there's also some concern about mitochondrial function or dysfunction being maybe the prime or, or one of the significant drivers of insulin resistance and therefore diabetes. I don't know if you've given any thought on that. And then, I, then if you don't mind, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you are using fasting with your patients uh, for what type of issues, uh, if, if, if you don't mind, because there's a lot of people that are interested. We've had snake diet guy on here, Cole Robinson, with yeah, his okay. with his crazy screaming and yelling at people. Yeah. <laughs> you got to give him credit for that. Yeah. Uh, but let's hear your take on mitochondria and diabetes, and then maybe fasting. Yeah. So mitochondria dysfunction is the pr if you're using your mitochondria, you're healthy. If you're not, you're unhealthy. So if you're not using your mitochondria, you're not healthy, what's your diagnosis going to be? Or how many diagnoses will you get? And diabetes was one of them, heart disease is another, cancer is another. So this is it. This is the whole mechanism. So if you're not using mitochondria, you're using more glycolysis, you're going to end up using more lactate. So when you try to get away from lactate, you're going to end up getting away from glycolysis and using more mitochondria. So that's basically what it is. What's your fuel? If you choose to use sugar 
as your fuel, you're going to die sooner. And diabetes may be one of your diagnoses. And if you choose to use mitochondria as your fuel, you know, like um, pyruvate uh, in, in the mitochondria, oxidative phosphorylation in the Krebs cycle, an electron transport chain, then you're going to live longer. That's basically what it comes down to. And the other thing about glycolysis is you're facilitating um, uh, various other pro-inflammatory chemicals like cytokines, et cetera, and you're creating more and more disease. So yeah, I think mitochondrial dysfunction or lack of mitochondrial use is definitely a, a driver for chronic disease, including diabetes. Now back into like the fasting, um, I personally like to do um, like one meal a day. I don't do that every day of the week. Um, and then I do have some patients who, and I, the other thing is when I, with the black mold, when I was first getting into ketosis, it really hurt my heart because black mold will like, will love ketones sometimes. So at some point in the future, I'll do a three day fast and a five day fast, but not now. I just need to feed my body as I'm detoxing the mycotoxins out of my heart. And I have, you know, I have urine tests to prove that it's actually working and it's going to take me a couple more years. So maybe five, six years total. But I've had patients do um, longer fasts, like a guy did 21 day fast. And in the middle of that, he did uh, four days of dry fasting, so no water. And um, I had a guy do, he was eating five meals a week. And he did that for many months. So, you know, people will choose what they want to do. I help facilitate their decision making on this. I had a guy doing one meal a week for three months. And uh, he was, you know, he lost a whole bunch of weight, which is great. He's doing much better. Um, so, but in, and some people, um, they prefer to do like a, sort of like a, let's say a zero carb, um, low calorie fast, like let's say avocados, right? There's no carbs in there. So they'll still get into ketosis. They're still getting some calories, you know, and they do that for five days and their ketones go up and their your glucose goes down. They don't necessarily get the autophagy, but they still get some autophagy, which is still very beneficial. So I just kind of present uh, various options and they choose what they want to do. And some people will, they'll choose to go get into ketosis like, you know, like a few days a month and that's it. Other people, they do it, they get into ketosis, they're in it all the time. Yeah, isn't it, isn't it uh, true that like, if your angle is autophagy versus weight loss, you can achieve that as well, just from a calorie restriction versus just a straight out fast, if just over time. Achieve the autophagy. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, I mean, exercise is the best way uh, to get autophagy going even more so than manipulating the diet. Interesting. Is that just because of the, your, is it, is there a variance between exercise induced autophagy when there's a fueling during the exercise or? I'm not sure how to answer that one. I don't know if I have an answer for you on that. No worries. It's just, cause I'm always thinking like, just like with in the world of fasting as a whole. And then when that world meets the endurance world, I find it an interesting topic because a lot of the fasting principles are kind of time-based application Right. And I mean, that makes sense to me for someone who's kind of got a very, very consistent routine from day to day. 
but then you enter the endurance world and like, you know, you may have a day where you're doing a long run and your metabolic demands are double what they would be at a resting rate. And you maybe have a rest day where it's very much close to your resting metabolic rate. And there's kind of this oscillation or these bigger ranges of kind of what your demands you're driving in terms of energy need. So like, for me, I'm thinking of it like, well, a 24 hour fast for someone who's sedentary could maybe be, it could be like from an energy, if you looked at it from an energy standpoint versus a time standpoint, you know, I could have a 24 hour fast that would, from an energy standpoint, be closer to a 48 hour fast. And then, you know, so it gets, but I mean, I don't know enough about what the variance is between that sort of thing. Like if there's an actual, like, if there's an actual benefit from just actual, the duration and time from like, just, I guess, like letting your digestive system rest versus like, just a net energy expenditure during that time frame. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by X3 Bar. The X3 Bar puts a new spin on banded workouts. Historically, bands have been supplementary or inadequate for true heavy lifting. Dr. Jakish has brought a product to market that has the convenience of bands, but with the option to provide the resistance of heavy free weights. The X3 bar has four custom bands, with the thickest one being engineered to sport over 500 pounds of resistance. The bar is designed to rotate as you move through the full range of motion. All this is anchored to the ground on a small standing plank. The design allows progressive resistance throughout the lift which more evenly distributes the lift's difficulty through the full range of motion. Personally, I've been using this both at home and when traveling on the road. It fits nicely into a rolling duffel and takes just a few seconds to set up. Sean has been using it for both core lifts and supplementary lifts. Dr. Jakish includes a training plan along with a detailed description of how to use the X3 bar for quick full body workouts. For a deep dive into the science, check out our episode 131 with Dr. Jakish. He also has loads of information on his website, which is x3bar.com. That's the letter X number three bar.com. If interested in purchasing an X3 bar, take advantage of our promo code 50X3 for $50 off your purchase. Link and code can be found in the show notes. Now back to the show. Yeah, now, let me, let me, sorry, let me, inter- sorry to interrupt you, Zach, but I wanted to just a couple things. So you talked about mitochondrial health. Um, I, I just don't know how to assess that. Is there, you know, cause it's, it's hard in, unless you're some aware of some tests out there that can, can assess your mitochondrial health outside of perhaps biopsy, which is obviously most people are going to sign up for that. But let's, uh, the other thing that I think is, is gaining a lot of attention in the last, you know, certainly in the last few years, but certainly probably a decade or more is the concept of visceral fat, you know, whether it's pancreatic fat, liver fat. Um, some people talk about my, my cellular fat. Um, we can assess that non-invasively with ultrasounds and stuff like that. And it seems to me that there's really no situation uh, where visceral fat seems to be an advantage. And it certainly right. may be a better, um, you know, consistent marker that we can use to look at you know, the, the, the health benefits or, you know, negative effects of whatever we're doing, whether it's diet, diet, lifestyle. Um, do you, what, do you subscribe to that thought? What are your thoughts on, on visceral fat? And, yeah. and if so, what's your experience? Been? Yeah, I'll start with that one first. I'm hundred percent with you on that. So, you know, and, and patients will say to me that they're, 
they get into ketosis and for maybe two days they're urinating more, right? Because the insulin drops down, the body dumps a bunch of fluid. This is when their blood pressure normalizes and they lose inches around their waist and they feel better. So that's the initial water weight. Then the body will start to take away that visceral fat, the abdominal fat. And then it takes away the fat that you see that's around the hips or the, you know, wherever, everywhere else. So people lose inches that way. And it feels good. They feel skinnier. People tell me they feel skinnier inside. So that's a, that's fantastic right there. And having said that, you know, there, there's that term skinny fat, which are people that are more plant-based and they, they lose their muscle. They're so they're skinny, but yet they have this sort of like a puffiness around them. Now, I don't know if that would be water weight or if that would be like visceral fat that is stuck in their abdomen or whatever. But Again, this, you know, let's not get confused with skinny fat with being healthy. You know? So we want to get rid of the excess fluid. We want to get rid of that visceral fat out of the abdomen. And then the rest of the fat goes away too. Um, but the other question was about testing for mitochondrial health. Yeah, there's a lab test, a company, and I, I've learned from them. And it was a, several years ago when I actually had a test run. And I believe it's Great Plains Lab. Maybe it's Genova. I think it's Great Plains, but they have a test, a series of, of uh, readings that will tell you how your mitochondria are doing. And um, so there's that. That's all I have for that. But like the symptoms, you know, the subjective symptoms going away, like, hey, my energy is better. My brain's working better. My endurance is better. Those are all signs that the mitochondria are coming back uh, to life and, the, you know, and working better. So a, a lot of my um, healthcare monitoring is with their symptoms for sure. Um, and then I want to get back to the, the fasting a little bit. So there's a lot of discussion on fasting. It's very beneficial, but I think there's a little bit too much focus on fasting in the natural healthcare world, as opposed to, I think we need to talk more about eating more protein. So, so I like Dr. Ted Naiman. I like what he has to say. And he says, you take, uh, you eat like one pound of, I'm sorry, one gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. So let's say you got somebody, they're overweight, they're 200 pounds, or they're supposed to be, they're supposed to weigh 150. So then you say, all right, now shoot for 150 grams of protein per day, not 150 grams of meat, but 150 grams of protein, use chronometer to make sure you, you achieve that goal. And I've had people say that's the best advice they've ever gotten in their whole life because now they feel so much better. Now it's kind of hard for people to do that initially. They may only get to 100 grams a day and, um, and then three months later, now they're at 150. So this, again, it's a thing where you gotta work your way up. You gotta train your body to take in that much meat or protein and fat. And uh, so I think that's probably the bigger issue across the board is like increase your protein. And at that carnivore conference where, Sean, where you and I met, you know, in Boulder, Amber O'Hearn said, um, she said the reason why fasting works is because it mimics the carnivore diet. And it's like, oh yeah, perfect. That's, that's what, that totally makes sense. Like you eat meats, that's what your body loves. You're getting all that protein. You know, you're feeding fat to your brain and your hormones. You feel good and your carbohydrates are down and then you have mitochondrial health. Whereas fasting, you get mitochondrial health and you get some autophagy there, but you're actually also too 
you're losing some nutrition temporarily. Yeah, I mean, I had made that comment quite a while back as well. I mean, I, I think when, uh, you know, I think when Joe Rogan had Rhonda Patrick on the show and they were trying to, and she basically said, well, it, it just kind of, the carnivore diet mimics fasting and I turned it around. I made a YouTube video. I said, I think probably it's the opposite. You know, I think probably yeah, cool. fasting mimics the carnivore diet. And there's some data that shows that. I mean, there's actually data on there looking at zero carb diets versus fasting. And we see much of the same things occurring. And you are right. You cannot fast indefinitely. You have to eat something at some point or you end up just... Well, obviously, we know you starve to death. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a that's a valid observation. I think that uh, we are seeing it play out clinically. I mean, obviously, uh, more more information needs to come out there. More studies need to be done. Hopefully, those are going to be happening. I mean, in fact, I know one of them will be happening, and so I'm excited about that. Um, what has been, uh, you know. Let me ask you this because, you know, obviously what you and I are talking about is not in line with most of the sort of information, nutritional information, particularly um, what has been the resistance among your patients or, or, do, or do they know ahead of time what they're getting when they come to you? And so they've already kind of checked that box that says, I'm, I'm not going to listen to the, to the normal stuff that I didn't get healthy with in the first place. And so, uh, or are you getting a lot of like raised eyebrows when you, when you, when you first, uh, you know, interview a patient and, and they start looking at you like you got a third eyeball or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. People come to me because they see my YouTube channel and uh, what other, whatever other social media that I do. Um, I had an experience last week where I had a teacher from a high school contact me and she wanted me to speak to her health class. And that was last week. I showed up, I talked about meat. I said, meat is important. I said that, you know, somebody asked about fruit. I said, fruit is just mostly sugar doesn't have that much nutrition in it. And um, I said, you know, various normal things that I like to say. And this high school has a policy. If you're upset by anything that you hear, you can leave the room and you don't have to come back. I had five kids leave that room within 10 minutes <laughs> and they never came back. And then when I was done, I got a call from a parent. What did you tell my daughter? You know, so the teacher had sent out an email to all the parents saying that, I had this guy come in and he was saying meat is good and he didn't have any research to back it up. And he said this and he said that. And the, you know, the students know that he's not right. And I'm like, Oh my God, this woman had never, the teacher had never seen my YouTube channel. I, I, I expected her that I expected that she did because anybody that ever co contacts me, they contact me because of the social media and what I say. So, but yeah, patients come in, they know exactly what they're getting into and they're ready for it. And they tell me, you know, but I've been watching you for two years on YouTube and now I'm ready. Let's start. And, you know, they had some things settled in their life and they're ready to get going. Well, you had, I, you had identified the five fruitarians in the, in the classroom. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's actually kind of very disturbing to hear that they have a policy. If, you, if somebody says something you don't like, you just <laughs> walk away. Well, it sets up the precedent. Yeah. yeah. In an education a, setting, you know, where you're supposed to be hopefully open-minded enough to exactly. sort of and take on this stuff. But, uh, make decisions, I, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and they're, they're certainly uh, pushing a plant-based narrative on our children right now in the schools. And, and you know, I guess uh, you don't see the kids being allowed to walk away from that stuff, I suppose. Or I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it just seems like a weird policy for a school to have that. But I guess we're in an age where everybody is 
kind of overly sensitive and everybody gets, you know, needs their safe spaces to run to. And uh, yeah, they need to eat liver. They need B vitamin by <laughs> nutrition. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. They need red meat. <laughs> yeah. To protect them. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the Nutrix study that came out recently and I've talked about that extensively on social media. And I think that it's interesting to see the pushback against that, you know, and I mean, it's basically all they're saying is that when we, when we hold nutrition, uh, science to a higher standard, then there's really no evidence that meat is, you know, at least no strong evidence would compel you to, 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 to recommend that meat is bad for us. And that has really upset a lot of people. And, you know, like you got people like uh, Neil Bernard with the DRM threatening to, to lodge, well, filing a lawsuit with the FTC, you know, trying to have them retract their study. Um, it is, uh, you know, and the, and the good thing is I'm aware, I mean, I think Nina Teicholz told me this, that there's going to be another large study coming out in the near future with probably similar findings. So it's going to be more and more. And then I think we're going to see more and more with that showing that, you know, red meat is actually not bad for us. It's actually good food. And we should probably, you know, consider, continue to value it in the human diet. And then, uh, you know, then of course a pivot will be to the environment. And then that's another sort of, you know, sort of a lot of misinformation you have to dispel, which I try to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the USD dietary guidelines for 2020, they're meeting now. They had their open, uh, you know, everybody had like a three minute window to speak. That was a few months ago. They're doing it again in Houston in January. And uh, I'm planning on signing up and going, flying down there and putting in my, my next uh, three minutes. But the point is, if the if the guideline committee can just open up the window a little bit and say, a low carb diet is a viable option. If they just had that one sentence, it opens up the door for all the universities and all the healthcare practitioners, et cetera, et cetera, to get people away from a high carb diet, and so they can eat more meat and feel better. Yeah, and I think that's like hopefully where we ultimately get with some of this, if we're going to have dietary recommendations, it seems like, especially with the availability of things, why not have options? Like why not like when you walk in and you're like, I'm looking for dietary advice, it not be this one, this is the way to do it. If you can't do it, you know, don't, don't bother showing up or you're wrong or you failed why can't it be like, well, here's an approach, here's an approach, here's an approach, here's an approach. Which one do you think fits your lifestyle best or one that's going to be most, that you're going to be able to adhere to the most? Let's start with that one. And I think all three of us would agree that like a low carb approach deserves to be at that table, have a seat at that table. Um, and at the end of the day, I feel like that's, that's all we're asking really. Like we're not asking it for it necessarily to be like to change the, food pyramid so that it only advocates for like a ketogenic diet, you know? <laughs> right. And so we just want to have a seat at the table. Yeah. Yeah. Nina had said she read the USDA guidelines uh, document, which is like 450 pages. And it had 77 articles saying that low carb beats low fat. And it had zero articles saying that low fat was better. So the score is 77 to zero according to the USDA in 2015. Then you have the public health collaboration of the UK. Their score is 32 to zero on these. And they're all trials. They're all, you know, they're not observational studies. These are actual clinical trials. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a little bit, 
it makes one wonder what evidence they're willing to use and, you know, how much, you know, potentially lobbying dollars impacts this sort of stuff. I mean, people underestimate how big the grain production yeah. you know, money is. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's, it, it, it exceeds the meat and dairy industry by, by, by quite a bit. So, I mean, it's, right. you know, it's, it's uh, interesting to see that. Um, I know, you know, and I'm aware of those uh, those things, and I, I don't know if I'll get to Houston or not. I don't know if I'll be able to in January, but I'm, you know, maybe possibly depending on what date it is. Um, there is, uh, oh, what was I going to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw like guys like Milton Mills, who's one of the vegan activist doctors, you know, is out there trying to make the case that dairy should be excluded from the from the dietary recommendation because it's racist, and his his argument is because many people either African-American or Asian have lactose intolerance and that therefore promoting dairy is racist towards those people. Although, I mean, there, there are many Caucasians that are lactose intolerant. So it's not, you know, it's just, it's just a, it's kind of a ridiculous argument in face, but I mean, that is what, you know, what's being up there. And, you know, I I mean, hopefully USDA won't, you know, will kind of laugh that off as it should. Uh, And, and then also the fact that there's people that are trying to really, like this is a thing we saw guys like Chris Gardner out of Stanford when he was criticizing the red meat study from Nutrex. He's, I think one of his arguments is, well, we still need to talk about the environment ethical things. And I think that has no place. Right. Honestly, when we're talking about human health. That's a completely separate issue. And then I would also make that the ethical and, and environmental arguments that are being put forth are actually flawed and, and misguided and there's it's misinformation. There's lots of ways you can view that. And so, but right. we should not be including that stuff when we're making what's the decision on what you and I should eat individually as a human, because it's, uh, you know, and I made this argument many times and I continue to make this argument, you know, sick people do are not good for the environment, a sick population. Oh, yeah. We know the U S healthcare industry is 10% of our greenhouse gases. If we want to use that metric, which is far more than the cattle that produce 2% are. So, I mean, it's, you know, we have to, we have to really look at this in a really, comprehensive way if we're going to say hey look um possibly if meat is good for humans and i would strongly argue that it is taking out the taking it out the diet and, and mostly what will be happen will be, it'll be replaced by beyond meat impossible burger which is just pure garbage that's going to lead to a more and more sick population you know if it's possible i don't know if we can get any any sicker but i assume we probably can <laughs> you know, instead of 80 percent of us being sick and maybe 95 percent. so if we do that then we have to calculate those numbers and say hey are, we're going to contribute more to the healthcare system which is going to contribute more to uh, environmental uh, right. greenhouse gases again if you want to use it in our metric and i realize there are many people out there that you know think that climate change is is overstated and it's not you know, necessarily human. I mean, we don't need to be dumping plastic in the ocean. That's pretty clear to me. You know, I mean, that's. Right. Yeah, I've been on YouTube. I've been following a guy named Tony Heller. And do you know him? I, I get a lot of people asking me to do that. I, like I said, I don't want to wave. I, I, I haven't really waded into the climate change because I, I just, you know, like, again, I'm a complete layman, at least when it comes to health and nutrition and medicine. I, I feel like I'm on stronger ground, but I think when you right. get into the sciences, which you have no background in, it's just whose opinion do you believe or whose right. facts do you believe? And so, well, I'm aware of him. I haven't really delved into his work. And I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm aware of some of the arguments, you know, the, the, the National Oceanic Association's right. temperature data. I've seen all that stuff. I've seen the counterpoints. I'm just not at a point where I'm going to fully go out there and say that, you know, we, we needed this you know, burn fossil fuels as much as we want and, and, and that sort of thing. I think there's, right. 
I think there's reasons, you know, like I said, I mean, if you look at the, you know, where, where we're seeing pollution, I mean, obviously most of it's come from China, India, so on and so forth. We're seeing uh, the U.S. actually is doing a reasonably good job of cutting back our emissions relative to other countries and so on and so forth. And so it's the point I always make is, you know, what's going on locally that you can impact locally? And it does it make sense to uh, stop eating meat or, you know, can you put solar panels on your house? Well, there's a lot of things you can do potentially. I mean, there's no benefit to throwing plastic in the ocean. I mean, I don't think there's any person, sane person would say that that's a good practice. Right. Yeah. So um, I'm a big fan of the Alan Savory. I know you've talked about him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that came up when I was speaking at this high school was, uh, you know, the cows farting and there's too many cows and that kind of stuff. But it's like, you know, in 1860, there were hundred million Buffalo and now there's 98 million cows. So how is it that 2 million less large ruminants are creating climate change, you know? And then somebody on Twitter had also added in that there used to be 30 million pronghorn antelope. Not all those are gone too, but um, yeah, I get most of my meat from a, a meat farmer uh, once one town over and it's all grass fed. And it's, I'm telling you, it's the best bacon, the best red meat, you know, steaks and pork I've ever had in my life. And I've been a customer of hers for like six years. And I took some down to my family and I had this grill covered with all different cuts of meat. My dad picked a pork chop and he ate it. And he said, that was the best pork chop I've ever had in my life. What did you put on it? And I said, nothing. It's just organically raised. And, you know, like that's, that's how, that's, that's how valuable it is. So when I was at the carnivore conference in, in the spring, some of the people sitting at my table told me that they, you know, they recognized me from my YouTube channel. We started talking and uh, a few of them were eating nothing but raw meat for a year, you know, and they get very picky about their cuts and, you know, the smells and the taste and all that stuff. So that's that level of quality of meat, you know, certainly across the country, it's missing. Um, but, you know, conventional meat is better than none. So I've done my own experiment where I ate con- conventional burgers bought at the, you know, the large superstore, had four patties and my heart's beating too fast. And then, you know, two days later, I do the same quantity, but it's grass fed and it looks better. Number one, it's more red and they have the same quantity and my heart is all nice and calm and there's no problem whatsoever. So people can feel the difference in the quantity, the quality of the, of the meat that they choose. And uh, we, you know, we want to have the highest quality that we can get across the country. Yeah, I think the we've had uh, say Alan Savory on the show and Joel Salatin, Bobby Gill, and they've they've talked to us about some of the regenerative practices and some of the promise within there. And and I think like even if you're going to take a stance of like that, regenerative practices aren't going to produce the increase the yield potential per acre that what we're seeing at some places like white Oaks. Uh, I mean, it's to me, it's like that type of a setup is going to localize things a lot anyway, which is probably a step in the right direction. If we're looking to kind of localize food systems a little more and help out with the transportation arm of all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Even 20 years ago, the Weston A price foundation was talking about or Sally Fallon was talking about, if you have a 50 acre um, regenerative farm with various types of animals and they're growing different products or different foods for the animals and for the customers, 
that farm will make way more money than a farm that's just commercially run. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's better for the environment. It's better for the farmer. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it takes more work. I mean, I would say that it takes more work, you know? Yeah. It's like we've more or less taken the autonomy away from the, the farmer nowadays where I think I, I could be wrong on this, but I, I want to say like I was looking at just like the stats on the return a farmer gets on their investment. It's something like 15%. And to think like we're asking this person to manage this animal's life from the cradle to the grave, so to speak, and kind of be the forefront of making sure the quality's there, the consistency's there, and you know, the proper care is there. It's pretty ridiculous that they're taking a 15% cut, <laughs> you know, like if, and, and that's what I think I like the most about that, that setup is if you localize it, and make it regenerative where possible you're 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 getting closer to direct to consumer type of a setup where they can actually get an appropriate return on what they're trying to sell um you know i think those are those aren't the people that should be taking the arrows (laughs) when we're talking about like how our farming and agriculture is structured today yeah yeah so even with my my family's farm um it's been in the family since 1937 and it's actually being sold in January. Somebody else, some other family is going to take over. But this year, with all the rain, out of 650 acres, only only 85 are planted. So all those other acres are just empty. And then insurance comes in and they pay uh, about 300 bucks per acre, which pays enough to spray it one more time to kill down all the weeds. Then you got to pay for rent on the land, you know, taxes, et cetera. And basically you make maybe 20 bucks per acre for the year. You know, it was like, that's, you can't support, support a family on that. But if that was like a, uh, a, a, not a commercial farm, you know, the, the losses would not have been so great. Mm-hmm. Be more resilient. I think some of the arguments that are being made is because the inputs required, you know, the fertilizing, the, 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 uh, the tractors and, and, you know, all the, all the, all the equipment and inputs that go into the farm to do, to do a commercially raised farm is very expensive. And the farmers take out these huge loans, you know, and of course they're, they're kind of subsidized somewhat to, to help that go, but they, they then get trapped. They kind of get into a yeah. trap as whereas like guys like Joel Salatin, they remove all of those inputs and it's basically just mostly just human with very little, like no fertilizers, no pesticides, you know, no, you know, nutritional supplements or antibiotics or any of that, those things they have to pay for it. So they just, you know, move their animals appropriately and use some, use a little bit of technology, but it's, it's very low input demand, very, very low cost to start up with. I think one of the problems is right now for people starting farms is farmland is incredibly expensive to buy because, you know, you have to buy it at commercial real estate prices because you can, that, that same land is being eyeballed for, you know, commercial development, big malls and, you know, you know, shopping, shopping structures. And so, the guys are selling the land want, want that kind of money. So that the farmer wants, they got to pay that, that inflated prices to do that. So it's a very scary thing as we see much of our good farmland is being replaced by parking lots and shopping malls. And so that's a lot, a lot of problems there. I think, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, how do we improve animal agriculture in a way that's environmentally sustainable? I mean, if, if, if we make the methane argument, which I think is, is kind of a, not really a great argument, but if we do, I mean, there's, you know, there's supplements you can feed these animals now that come from 
things like red algae, which will cut methane supplements, su methane production by tr tremendously. It can alter their gut microbiome because what's going on is they are eating grasses and forages that create the methane. It's, it's done by the bacteria. And so you can actually adjust those bacteria so they don't produce as much. And then, of course, the regenerative style, which I think, you know, I'll continue to argue is, I, I you know, a good way to do this. And it, it doesn't mean we have to take all 92 million or 98 million. I think I think the latest I saw was about 92 or 94 million cattle in the U.S. and convert them to regenerate. But if we can convert a significant number of them, maybe even 10, 20 percent, we've made, we've made a huge difference in cutting the, the environmental impact on those animals. And so it's uh, it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, I, what I what I worry about is Cardinal Tyson Foods, JBS. You know, they control most of the meat in the country, and they they're they're all on board with hey, let's make uh, lab-grown meat, let's make some uh, uh, let's invest invest in these plant grows plant-based meats, let's mix some of the the beef, the actual beef with vegetables, you know, soybeans and whatever, you know, soybean soybean oil, and, and so that's the concern. So it, it, it's in our interest as a consumer to really reach out to these ranchers and support these guys and let them know that, Hey, we will buy from you guys. If we, if I can afford it, not everybody can, but if, if I can, then supporting these guys, giving them more uh, willingness to make the jump, but particularly young guys getting into the business because the average farmer in the U S is 63 years of age and a rancher. And you know, that, that's not sustainable. Right. Yeah. And so you know, getting into the regenerative ranching and deleting, deleting out some of the, the, the mono agriculture, I think is really important. And I remember as when I was younger in the nineties, uh, stepping over a bag of, of seed and it was Roundup Ready soybeans. I'm like, what the heck is this? And then we also started growing BT corn, biotech, you know, GE corn. And my dad, after that first year, he said, you know, they told us we would spray it less. Because on the average, you would spray a field maybe six or eight or seven times. And with that BT corn, it was weaker. And they actually had to spray it more. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's like every, you know, he's, you got trapped, right? Like you said, so you get trapped in the system, you get subsidies from the government, you know, for your, your soy, your wheat and corn. And then over time, those, those profit margins get smaller and smaller and smaller. And what are you going to do? Switch over to carrots, you know, switch over to cabbage. That's what our farm did for all those years was food that people could eat, you know, cutting cabbage out of the fields. And we had the sweet corn and potatoes and broccoli and squash when I was growing up. And then, you know, you know, now it's food you can't eat. You send that food, you know, the corn would go to cows, but the rest of it actually goes to make drywall and markers and, and fuel. It's like, well, no wonder we're importing so much from other countries because we're not growing our own food. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think the biggest problem is actually the um, agricultural bill that gets re-signed every year. And just more stuff is added to it, more sort of ag welfare is added to it. And at some point, that needs to change. But it, it, it's the same thing sort of in medicine, too. Like, there's, here's the big system, and then doctors get trapped in that system. And I'm out of the system. I'm number one, I'm a chiropractor. Number two, I haven't taken insurance since 2005. I don't have anybody telling me what to do with the patient. So I can go nutrition, supplements, and I can vary the diet and I can, you know, run whatever blood work. I don't have insurance companies telling me what I can and cannot do. I'm out of the system and it's fun and I get really good results and people pay cash to see me and everybody already has their health insurance. 
So for them to pull cash out of their pocket and pay me more, that means I have to be really good at what I do. Same thing with the organic farmers. They have to be really good at what they do. So there was a, a time when I was promoting uh, raw milk and there was a guy um, who got in trouble with the law and his place was raided. They stole all his milk and all his computers. And he was, he hit, he made the headlines. And uh, soon after that, he was completely filled up with customers. He couldn't take any more customers. <laughs> so then he went to another raw milk farmer. They got filled up with customers. Then he went to a third raw milk farmer. And this is a different story. She was uh, unknown to me. I had to figure it out after, after a while, but she was, lazy she was unorganized and um there was a person that drank her raw milk and got q fever which is from raw milk and she almost died she spent weeks in the hospital and they saved her life so when you look back at it at that situation what's the problem is it raw milk no it's actually the farmer had dirty cows dirty containers dirty barns and was you know spreading q fever so it when it, when you're out of the system whether it's medicine or agriculture or whatever, you end up working harder. You have to be more ethical. You have to do your marketing. You can't not market. Um, you're relying on word of mouth too. And you know, you have to be a good steward of your profession. So it takes a, it takes a special person really. You know what I mean? Like not everybody can handle the free market as it were. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think, uh, I don't think it's without problems, I guess, even with a, you know, a more localized, I mean, I mean, you can always go back and forth with this stuff. It's like, you know, you get a lot of regulation and you're probably not going to get some weird pathogen in your product, but you know, you get too heavy on regulation and then now all of a sudden it's tough for a farmer to get you their product or, you know, a doctor to get you their service without having to jump over more hurdles than they can afford to do or be able to get away with. So um, it is interesting, but guys, I have to actually get going because I got a hard out coming up pretty quick here. But um, if, Darren, it was awesome to have you on the show and uh, thanks for giving us so much of your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm humbled that you invited me on your show. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to share with our listeners too, where they can find you like social media, your YouTube channel and things like that. Uh, you can feel free to share that right now and then I'll also include them in the show notes. Yeah. The, uh, just go on YouTube and search my name. You'll, my channel will come up also some, some of my videos, but you also see some, uh, vegan videos about me that are, uh, that are bad. So just ignore those. <laughs> just watch mine. And, uh, my website for my office is the NHCAA.com, which stands for the nutritional healing center, Ann Arbor. So I have people come in locally. I get people that fly in for like maybe three visits in two days. We got these different travel packages and then they fly back home and we do long distance consulting. I also do long distance consulting without seeing people personally, you know, face to face. So there's different ways that we can, that I can interact with patients. And those are, those are my main ways that people can reach me. I also have, I got a supplement called Heritage Glandulars. Just go to heritageglandulars.com. And it's a multi-glandular, it's nine organs in a pill. So if people don't want to eat nose and tail because they think it's disgusting, they can just take this pill and they have to cycle it on and off. And then the, the other thing is um, I have a company called The Good Fat Bar. 
So it's a cacao based uh, fat bar. So the website is goodfat.bar. And then I had one more, bear with me. These are my ads. <laughs> one more. I got a, a company called Power Nutrition Practice where I help people, doctors, healthcare practitioners, nutritionists, um, work with patients nutritionally using this concept of fixing, you know, not just the cause and feeding the organs, but also fixing the mechanism. I described, you know, how to do that. And also some basics on running a nutrition practice that's cash, including some marketing and some administrative and executive stuff. So those are different ways that people can reach me. Good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I've got some, I've actually got some vegan YouTube videos about me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure you do. You, you helped me, Sean, because in 2017, I was attacked for a whole year by vegans. And I learned a lot from that. And I was figuring out like, why are they saying the things they're saying? And I looked at their studies and I saw how they don't have any science. And it's just all, you know, babble, basically. And I felt like, you know, being attacked, you know, it wasn't fun. And then you got some notoriety with the Joe Rogan interview. And then after that, you know, and then Frank Tofano came out and some other people and I was, and I felt relieved because the vegans started going after other people like you. <laughs> so spread you. out, spread out the targets. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to go grab some food. Speaking of which, I haven't had breakfast yet, so I'm going to go eat some steaks and thanks Terry for coming on. All right. You're welcome. Take care. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.